Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. May 11th, 2023, the libel, libel, libel edition. That's liable. Instead of guilty, 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 because it's a civil case. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by John Dickerson of CBS Primetime from New York. Hello, John. Hello. And by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David and John. We're all in our proper places. Yay. We're all back together, everywhere in the same spot. This week on the GabFest, former President Trump is liable for the sexual abuse and defamation of E. Jean Carroll. We will discuss. Then, what will the end of Title 42 mean for the immigration crisis at the southern border? We'll talk to Natalie Kitroeff, the New York Times' Mexico bureau chief. And then, debt ceiling negotiations appear to be going nowhere. Why isn't anyone panicking? I am panicking. I'm panicking. I've just got gold stacked up next to me instead of dollars. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. Before we get started, though, some fantastic news. We're doing a live show, our first live show in a while. We're going to be in D.C. at 6th and I, Historic Synagogue, one of our favorite venues to record in, on June 28th. The show starts at 7.30. Doors open at 6.30. There's going to be a cocktail event for Slate Plus members. And tickets are on sale now. You can go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. Slate.com slash live. There also is a virtual option. So if you want to watch along live and you can't make it to D.C. that night, you can watch virtually. So we really look forward to seeing you in D.C. at 6th and I on June 28th. Slate.com slash live for tickets. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I know you guys talked about this last, last week, but this week there was big news in the E. Jean Carroll lawsuit. She won her civil suit against former President Trump. A New York jury found a preponderance of evidence that Trump sexually assaulted Carroll in 1996 and then defamed her last year when he claimed that she made the assault up. Carroll's vivid recounting of the assault, contemporaneous witnesses she told about the assault, Testimony from two other women who alleged that Trump assaulted them in a similar way. Trump's own words about his practice of sexual assault. These were strong enough evidence, apparently, to persuade the jury to award Carol $5 million in damages. Trump, who didn't testify, says he will appeal. He also, at his CNN town hall on Wednesday night, mocked Carol yet again and uh, derided her. So I know you guys talked about this last week. I didn't listen to it. But Emily... This seems to be an incredible rebuke of Trump, the final, finally legal validation of the many, 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 many claims of sexual abuse leveled against him. Do you think the verdict will have an impact? Well, I think it matters a lot for Eugene Carroll, for the kind of aftermath of Me Too, and for other people coming forward with claims like this. I mean, Trump got due process. It was civil rather than criminal, but the penalty is also paying a fine, not going to jail. So in that sense, it's commensurate. And 
Carol had as much supporting evidence as it's possible to have about a very old allegation. She had two friends she told at the time. The judge let in evidence of uh, other women saying Trump had not raped them, but also assaulted them. And that was to show a pattern. And then there was the Access Hollywood tape in which Trump is bragging about doing just this. I think the maybe the most politically charged part of this whole event is the deposition Trump gave in which when he was making excuses for his Access Hollywood, you know, grabbing women by the pussy comment, he said, well, it's just that's been true historically for stars for a million years, unfortunately or fortunately. And I mean, I just <laughs> I know that we're supposed to lose the capacity to be shocked by Donald Trump. But what? Like that? Anyway, so I expect that will be a campaign ad. The point being that it's not fortunate that women have endured this for low these many years. Like, it's really not OK to say that. Yeah. And and also, it, once you say that, you're making a claim in the present. This is no longer about the case. This is a general claim by an adult human being who was the former leader of the free world saying, it's possible that it's fortunate that stars are able to sexually assault women. In the present, he's making a judgment about a value claim in the moment. It has nothing to do with the case anymore. I couldn't agree with you more, Emily. And he's really talking about himself. It's obvious from the rest of that tape. The other interesting part about that is the description of star for a million years, stars. There haven't been stars for a million years. It's interesting that he thinks of himself as a star, that that's his, that's his own identity rather than I'm a powerful person or I'm an important person. I'm a star. This, that was just I, that part yeah. also struck me as odd. He was an incredible witness against himself, even though he didn't appear. Just the fact that in the deposition he identified Eugene Carroll as his own wife, that he he pointed to her as a picture and asked if that was his wife, even after he had said she's not his type. Uh, the Access Hollywood tape, of course, this f- for unfortunately or fortunately line, it was astonishing, John. I mean, the other thing was this CNN town hall that took place on Wednesday night, which I really want to hear John's thoughts about why that was an OK thing for CNN to do. But, you know, Trump was mocking Carroll. He just was like 100 percent his never ashamed, never having any kind of reasonable reaction. He's just being a bully. I mean, also, Emily, as a legal matter, before we move on, could he basically refreshed the claim that was the subject of the defamation? (laughs) It's a rolling it's a rolling defamation. It's like, here's another million. I know. (laughs) Well, that's my this is my question precisely, which is, A, how, how much does that uh, affect his ability to appeal the case if he's continuing to engage in the behavior for which he was just assigned a $5 million penalty? And or um, in civil cases, is there a double jeopardy? In other words, or I guess this isn't double jeopardy. It's not the same crime because he's done it afresh. I mean, Carol could go back to court in the process of the appeals and point this out and ask for more damages, right? Like that's possible. In terms of Trump's ability to, to appeal... To be fair, if your defense to defamation is this is made up, it never happened, then like the fact that you continue to say it's made up and never happened is shouldn't affect your ability to bring that particular claim. Are you guys not you 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 said a minute ago, Emily, he got due process. Are you guys not at least slightly queasy about the nature of this lawsuit? This is a case that snuck around statutes of limitations because New York passed this law at in part at the behest and urging of E. Jean Carroll, she was a lobbyist for this law, which gave a one-year grace period for victims of sexual assault to sue their abusers, no matter how long ago the abuse occurred. And Carroll, who had lobbied for the lawsuit, 
filed her lawsuit a minute after the law went into effect. I mean, it's a, statutes of limitations exist for a reason. Memories are fallible and people change. I look, I think Trump is liable as hell. Like it's clear he did this jury did not it, it's this is not a trivial frivolous verdict, but it is as a as a matter of kind of law to to just like, oh, we're going to get rid of statutes of limitations for this one kind of case in this one time seems slightly queasy making to me. Well, to flesh this out a little bit, it wasn't just Eugene Carroll who was asking for this, right? She was a person who asked for it, however. A person, yes, 100%. But it was a broader kind of push from the Me Too movement asking New York for a one-year window of exemption for adult victims of sexual misconduct to be able to sue civilly. And I usually get nervous about really old claims reappearing in court. And I maybe this is self-serving of me as a feminist, but you're talking about a particular kind of claim that was really hard to bring in times past, right? People, often women, experiencing sexual assault behind closed doors that they were ashamed about that, you know, often turned into a kind of he said, she said. There was all the problems of being cross-examined as a witness, which we saw unfold. And it's civil, not criminal liability, right? I mean, Trump's not going to jail. He just has to pay some money. All of that makes a difference to me in evaluating this. And obviously, Trump's defense lawyer's best card to play was, you don't even remember what day this happened on. You know, you don't have enough corroborating evidence. So it's not as if the jury wasn't highly aware of how old the charges were and the difficult nature of recovering exactly what had happened in light of the the age. And also the jury stopped short. They could have had it been a thoughtless jury merely out in the world to go after Donald Trump, wouldn't they, Emily, have picked the rape charge? In other words, they picked the second charge that the judge in the tree of possible charges they could find for. They didn't pick the maximum one. And I guess, the you know, obviously they didn't say $50 million or something. So that's not to say that I think your questions are, your questions are valid and interesting, David. But it, the, the jury seems to have shown some discernment beyond just the final claim that they made. For sure, the jury showed discernment, for sure. And given what I've read of the case, I suspect that I would have been right with them. And and I also think probably it would have been very hard. What there is is a pattern of Trump sexually assaulting women in a particular way. We don't necessarily have a pattern of Trump raping women in a particular way that we know of. We have this one case. And the, contem- the testimony of a friend who had contemporaneous re- recollection of E. Jean Carroll calling her and telling her about this. And a window like this that gets around the statute of limitations, what it's doing is taking all the problems of proof and putting them in front of the jury, as opposed to saying, these issues of proof are so great that we're not even going to allow them into court at all. I know, but the, isn't the point of statute of limitations is to say, like, juries are, can be swayed by emotional arguments, and there are so many problems with evidence and with proof when you get past a certain period of time that we should be very leery of allowing those things to be litigated in court in front of a jury. Statutes of limitations are something that have existed in the justice system for a very long time because we are concerned about the potential abuses. I don't think this was a potential abuse. I think, obviously, he is a terrible and he's a sexual assaulter. But as a broader principle, it worries me. 
There's also another justification for having a limit in time, which is that people should be able to go on with their lives, right? Yeah. Murder has always been exempted. The idea is if you take someone's life and they can, you can be held accountable for that, it doesn't matter when. But usually that's not true of other crimes because we view them as less serious and we just think that, you know, it just is sort of lost to time. And that principle, I don't know, it it's very hard, at least for me, to separate Donald Trump and his pattern of escaping accountability for accosting women from the due process he received here and from the fact that we all got to parse this evidence and the jury got to think about it. It seems like on the ledger of accountability, there was a lot to say for having some means of holding him accountable here. And I don't know where this falls in the balance of trying to work out this question distinct from Donald Trump. So leave him out of it for a moment. But the very specific recollections of people, uh, women I know who were assaulted like this or close to this in this time period are as searing and alive today for them as if it were the day afterward. And maybe that doesn't mean you change the statute of limitations, but it is a, it's a real and live thing for these women. And so the passage of time, for me, sits differently having had those conversations uh, with women. And and that obviously leads to an interesting political question, because as Trump behaves like a person in this deposition who could engage in this activity, is caught on tape bragging about engaging in this activity, and then treats E. Jean Carroll as he has many women dismissively and as, as a kind of object and something not human, it would seem to build a pretty strong case in people who might have had these kinds of experiences in their own life as they go to think about making their voting choices, that he's not a person to be embraced uh, with the vote. Yeah, John, let's turn to that for a minute. What do you think the political consequences of this particular case might be? Republicans have not respond to the verdict very much. I mean, there have been a few anti-Trump Republicans like Asa Hutchinson and Mitt Romney who've been quite critical. Actually, John Cornyn and I, and John Thune, both who would not be considered, you know, hardcore anti-Trumpers, both basically said, I don't see how he gets the nomination after the, after this came out. Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio defended him by attacking the New York system, which is its own interesting thing. Like, when Trump gets a, a jury award against him, for essentially what he bragged about doing. It seems like a weird time to go rush in and defend him. You, you just let that one go by. But they both did. So they read the, the politics differently, or they have um, such a strong feeling about the jury system that they wanted to make take this moment to make that claim. But I was struck that there were more Republicans who had felt this way. And if you add the, the ruling plus uh, Trump's behavior in the 70 minutes or so that CNN gave him to speak to his some of his most enthusiastic supporters based on the the crowd that they had at the at the town hall you know he lost suburban women i don't see anything in this behavior that's going to make a person in that category more anxious to vote for him do you guys think that if you were ranking the kind of legal consequences for trump this verdict versus potential criminal charges and criminal liability he could face in the various other cases with the tampering and with the election in Georgia or the meddling with top secret documents that should he shouldn't have had. Do you think this one has more political throw weight than the others or not necessarily? 
I think it has more, given all the factors that John just said, that there's a particular group that needs to go vote for Trump the way they did in 2016. And a lot of them are women. And this just feels it's going to feel visceral for some people. So how do you as a Republican, let's let's say somebody goes to Nikki Haley and says, is it, is it fortunate or unfortunate that men can sexually assault women if they have a certain star status? Haley was asked about the verdict in a kind of clumsy way, and she ran around it. But the challenge is whether and how other candidates and other lawmakers, you know, they have to answer for this. He's the leader of the party by a wide margin, undoubtedly more so after the CNN town hall. And he holds views that are um, objectionable to, you know, important voting blocks. So how do people manage that? I mean, I think they the way they managed it in the past is they spent five years ducking the things he said. But um, when, when it turns into court verdicts, it, it feels like you have to say more. And I mean that not just with respect to this, but all the other things he faces. Before we move on, John, why did CNN have that town hall with Donald Trump? And do Haley and... The other people running for president, DeSantis, Pence, if he gets in, like, how can they justify giving one candidate in a primary that kind of free airtime like that? I mean, it was like a giant advertisement for the sake of the primary. So that there are many flaws. That's one of the big ones, which is um, one of the things everybody learned is that giving disproportionate airtime to one candidate, especially this early in the process, distorts the process. But he is the front runner of the Republican Party and determines what the Republican Party thinks more than any other official by a long shot. So um, having an interview with him is a great thing to do. Doing it in an, a rally-like atmosphere, essentially, which is what the town hall was and the, is a mistake if you're trying to have an interview in which you examine the ideas. The thing is, obviously, Haley and and you know Tim Scott and others who would have a town hall, they might do that. It's not inconceivable that they would do that, but it obviously is not the same ratings getter that the Trump interview was. Slate Plus members, you get a bonus segment on the GabFest and on other Slate podcasts. You get bonus episodes of some Slate podcasts. You get no ads on Slate podcasts. We have a great bonus segment teed up this week. We got a listener question. Uh, I'm not going to get too specific about it, but it's about how much each of us personally must do to fight the partisan divisions in the nation. And what is our personal obligation to the rest of our country? And we're going to talk about that through the lens of this one dilemma that a listener has. Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus and become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. 
That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. At midnight tonight, the pandemic health emergency ends and the U.S. government will stop being able to use Title 42 to justify the summary expulsion of lots of migrants attempting to cross into the U.S. or having crossed into the U.S. It's widely expected, although maybe this is not correct, that the southern border will be thronged with a new wave of thousands or tens of thousands of people, almost all of them desperate, almost all of them fleeing horrible, dangerous, and pretty hopeless situations in countries like Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti, Honduras, Nicaragua. And as the president himself has said, what happens next could be a mess. Is the United States ready for the surge of people that's going to come across the border starting later this week? Uh, We're doing all we can. Uh, The answer is uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, We've gotten overwhelming cooperation from Mexico. So but it remains to be seen. It's going to be chaotic for a while. We're joined by Natalie Kitroeff, the Mexico bureau chief of The New York Times. She's in Juarez. Natalie, thanks for being here. What changes in the law tonight and what do American and Mexican officials expect to happen at the U.S.'s southern border in the coming weeks? So tonight, the pandemic era rule that allowed the Biden administration to immediately expel migrants who crossed illegally into the country uh, will expire. So what that means is that the administration will no longer be able to very quickly turn people away and send them back when they enter illegally. I I will say I did not really even fully understand what it meant to cross the border illegally until I spent some time here in Juarez. And, you know, sometimes crossing the border illegally does mean going through a treacherous desert, forging through a body of water, um, you know, trying to escape undetected. But there are parts of the of the border, especially here in Juarez, where the Rio Grande River is actually it's it's narrow and it's calm and you can walk across pretty easily. And once you do that, the actual border between the United States and Mexico is the middle of that river. And so once you get across, you're on U.S. soil and that means you crossed illegally. And so the difference What's going to change is what happens to you when you do that. And the Biden administration has put in place new rules that will govern that. I really think people don't have any idea what to expect, either on the Mexican side or the U.S. side. So you wrote a really good piece today about why so many millions of people are leaving their homes um, across Latin America. And you were talking about the recession and the aftershocks of the pandemic and the way in which the region has been one of the hardest hit in the world. And those are the push factors, the reason why people want to leave. There's obviously a big debate in the U.S. about the pull factors and whether the end of this pandemic policy, Title 42, whether Title 42 itself was a deterrent, whether the harsh immigration policies of the Trump administration were the reason that numbers were lower before, or at least an important reason, and whether the end of Title 42 is kind of signaling, well, yeah, you can get in and apply for asylum and they'll let you stay while your asylum petition is pending. One of the things I was getting from your piece is that there's been a ton of misinformation about that and this idea that Title 42 means that the end of it means that the border is now open. That's not the case, but it's 
affecting people's behavior. And so I just wonder how you think about these push and pull factors and their relative significance in actually determining how many people try to come. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think so Title 42 obviously was put in place. It was what well, was put in place during the Trump administration um, at the start of the pandemic. So, you know, technically it started as a Trump policy, but it was kept in place all this time by so both presidents have have used it regularly. And it was supposed to be or you know, it was it looked like a total ban on entry. You know, it was when when you talk about what it is, yes, you can immediately expel people across the border. But the reality is that that's not how it worked in practice. You know, in order to expel people that are already on U.S. soil, because remember, we just said you know, a lot of people, they could just walk and they're there. Right. And so then U.S. officials have to do something with them. And so sending them back to Mexico requires that Mexico agree to take them. Mexico only agreed to take a certain number of countries that initially it was the Northern Triangle countries, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador and, and Mexican nationals. And so, you know, in, in the beginning of the pandemic, that's kind of, and that's generally been where, you know, most of the people crossing the border come from. But as the pandemic raged in Latin America and created, you know, really once in a lifetime um, despair, we are talking about a generation poverty reduction wiped out across the region, unemployment hitting a two-decade high, massive shock in Latin America. You see a large number of people from all these countries that, you know, were not big sources of migration to the U.S. in this way before rushing to the border. And when that happens, the system becomes overwhelmed, one. And two, you know, Immediately expelling someone is difficult when Mexico doesn't accept them, when you have to fly them to their home country, which is expensive, logistically challenging. Some of these countries are accepting expulsion flights. And so those folks, a lot of them started getting let in with a notice to appear before a judge. There is a lot of information and misinformation circulating among migrants. They're all in WhatsApp groups, they're on Facebook, you know, TikTok, Instagram, you name it. But the messages that they were getting that were the most potent were the ones from their family members who had gotten in in this policy because of the situation. And that drove, I think, you know, experts will tell you a lot of decisions to come north. And so I mean, this is a very disappointing answer to just say, I think it's both, but I do think the policy itself not working the way it seemed like it was working is a really big part of this and the messages that got sent from people who got in. You had said earlier that people don't have any idea on either side of the border what's really going to happen. Did you mean that in the sense that they don't understand, they think it's going to be big and it's even going to be bigger? Or is there any way that they think it's going to be big and actually it might not be as bad as they think? You know, the answer about whether people, you know, think it's going to be easier or think it's going to be harder. I've actually heard both from migrants here. They're getting the message from smugglers and others. The border's open. But another group of them are exchanging information between themselves saying, no, no, no. Now it's going to be way more difficult to get through. But what I found here at the border over the last few days is that 
either way, they think they don't have any time to waste and they need to get to the border now. And so that's what's been happening, at least, you know, here here in Juarez, and we've heard it from other cities across Mexico, that people have been coming to the border cities and then going immediately across the border. They go immediately to the border. They don't wait in shelters. They just, they get off the bus, they get off the train, whatever they, they start going. And so I think the levels have been elevated. The other day, you know, one of our Washington reporters told me, and I think we just reported this, that there were 11,000 daily crossings. That's, yeah. you know, there was only 5,000 or 6,000 back, you know, a few weeks ago. So that already is elevated. So I, I really think it is foolish for any of us to think that we can predict exactly what's going to happen. Because honestly, at the end of the day, and I really do believe this, what is driving people is not U.S. policy at this point. People are desperate and they're coming because they feel that there's an opportunity. And that is about misinformation. Sometimes it's about good information. You know, sometimes U.S. policy is like a tiny bit to do with it, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But but we can't control these massive crises going on. And and so I think the policy itself, you know, is just it's just another change in this kind of long history of back and forth on border policies that just have not stopped what we know continues, which is waves of migration to the United States. I mean, this I know you're not a political reporter, Um and certainly not an American domestic political reporter, but this is a terrible issue politically for Democrats. Uh, c- controlling a border is, is a necessary requirement for any stable country, and it's a political necessity for any Democratic president. And arguably, some of the most troubling political developments in recent years across the world have stemmed from a sense that rich nations have lost control of their borders. I mean, I was talking to somebody yesterday who was saying that Brexit is basically a response arguably a response to the migrations from Syria into Europe and the rise of Orban as a response to the migration of, of people into Europe. So do you hold out any hope that an American president can get hold of this, either by being incredibly humane or by being incredibly cruel or by somewhere in between? You know, I think there's two questions, which is really like, can you solve immigration, which requires such more than any pre- one president really can do. It requires a Congress that's willing to look at immigration reform. You know, it requires really big structural questions that that need to be hashed out in the legislature and at local elections about, you know, how do we deal with a worker shortage or wages or whatever? You know, how, what what is the, what is the, and maybe it's zero tolerance for people to kind of think about creating real legal pathways into the United States, because you cannot enforce your way out of the desire to migrate. It's even when Trump was in office, people were migrating in 2019, you know, a massive wave like this. If you ask people in Juarez, what did you, you know, what does this remind you of? They say 2019, which is when Trump was in office and arguably doing some of, um, you know, the most kind of strict, harsh measures that we've, we've seen. And so, you know, the actual problem, I think, requires a really big, deep solution that has a lot of elements that one president doesn't control, but maybe could lead and we'll we'll see. But managing the the not just the optics, but the kind of danger of the trip, you know, that people are taking and the intense pressure on the countries in between what this flow looks like through the region. I think you can come up with solutions that make it less dangerous, 
make it le- less of a humanitarian crisis, just the mere act of getting to the border. And I think they're trying. Like I said, I think we're really deep in it and uh, you got to get cooperation from a lot of countries on the way. So we'll see what happens. Natalie, give us a little more of a taste about the misinformation, the the networks of conversations, because I really was struck by your point about you can't you can't clamp down on desire. And then and as you said that, I was thinking about, you know, there's a bill going through the House of Representatives about adding more money to build the border wall. And I just sort of imagined, you know, layers and layers and layers of border walls, but you've still got these WhatsApp groups saying <laughs> there's a hole in the wall, whatever, metaphorical or otherwise, and that that's where the wall has to exist. You know, I'm not talking about with, with coercion or something, but can you just give us a little feel and sense of of what you were talking about earlier, which is how this information flow allows the tiniest little flicker of hope to be kindled and turn into, a you know, a raging message? Yeah, well, there's just these huge groups, these chat groups of migrants. There's actually not that many reporters in them. Um, There's one really big one that a lot of reporters are in, but then there's all of these others that are really just for migrants. And I've had migrants describe them to me and, you know, we look at the messages and talk to me about what's in there. But yeah, I mean, it's just like, again, uh, someone got across in a certain place. I'm in Juarez, for example. There's a there's this long border that has various different gates that have numbers. So the gates are becoming hotspots because migrants are telling each other, come to gate 40 or come to gate 42, or I got to gate 36 by going around here and taking a bus here and then stopping off here. And then I walked this long and on the left, you'll see a this. And then you walk down and there's a little hole in the water fence. You go through that hole. Literally, there is a hole like that in the border wall, but in the fence, you go through that hole and then you're there. And so what what I've been told is that these massive groups, like someone puts a message like that, that starts a whole new thread. So then you get a new group where they're then talking about that. And so um, that's one way there's TikTok, you know, there's Facebook, you get these messages of people saying the border's open, you know, go. I, I have been struck, I'll tell you, by the number of migrants that I spoke to who went through the Darien Gap, this this jungle that was once considered impassable that is now just like an absolute highway for migration across the region. So many record levels are going through this jungle. Um, and I, I asked them, like, why did you do this? Seems so hard and bad. And, and they responded that they were told it wasn't that bad. You know, I mean, they really thought it wasn't going to be that bad to cross this jungle because of the messages they were receiving, which is totally understandable when you look at them. And so, yeah, I, I really think that the conversation that's happening on social media and, and frankly, like, I don't know how you control that. There's just a lot of stuff in there that you just do not control. It's just people talking to each other. You know, I think the administration is, it talks a lot about smugglers. And I think there are smugglers involved in this. Of course, they're taking advantage, of course. But the biggest, biggest motivator that I've seen are just people trusting each other. And, and hope. And hope. Back to hope. I mean, they really want it. And so when when says something that seems like it, it could be a way into the United States, it's very hard to resist the pull of that message. Natalie Ketroff is the Mexico bureau chief for the New York Times. Thanks, Natalie. Thank you, guys. Wall Street seems quite chill, 
and global markets seem to be kicking back with a cold one. Americans as a whole seem to be wasting away in Margaritaville very happily. I'm in a panic. The breach of the debt ceiling is three weeks away, potentially. Biden and congressional leaders had one quite desultory progress-free session on Tuesday, which is the first time the president and Speaker McCarthy had met in 97 days, but they are supposed to meet again on Friday. It all seems quite lackadaisical, John. Is that is it lackadaisical or is, it, is there is this like the duck where underneath the water everything's churning and it's they're moving very quickly towards some kind of solution? Uh, we don't know. We don't know because some of the things that have happened, like the Tuesday meeting, can, can look like nothing got done and both sides are dug in and there's nowhere to go. And that can be a sign of progress or a sign there's no progress. What do I mean? So if it's a sign of no progress, it means nobody's doing anything behind the scenes, and these are their fixed positions, and they can't get themselves out of it. If it's a sign of progress, it is, these are their maximalist positions. They say them out loud. They have their staffs working behind the scenes to figure out where the common areas of agreement are, what the short-term offerings each could make the other to at least create the conditions for both to then climb down from those public positions, having with the ability to say... Hey, you know, I told him what for. And I, you know, and I really told him and then, 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 you know, he caved and gave me this. There's that famous scene where President uh, Johnson does this in negotiation with Harry Byrd. He, he says, now you go tell your guys that you beat up the president and got him to do what you wanted. He understood that this is what was required. So you would expect them to come out of that Tuesday meeting with nobody budging. But the good sign, to the extent there are any, and you have to look at them through a microscope, is that the staffs are meeting. And what the staffs do is they try out and play out with each other what are the kinds of things each side can agree to. As you said, the clock is ticking. Nothing's going to get done of the size that needs to get done before June 1st, which is the X date when it all goes to hell if the U.S. can't pay its past bills. But the hope would be that they come up with enough in in discussions that McCarthy can say, let's vote for a temporary raising of the debt ceiling for a month, two months or whatever it is to finish these negotiations. And then hopefully negotiations go on and the debt ceiling gets raised. But that scenario, which is the, the best one so far, is still you have every reason to be scared, David, because... What I think is true with this dynamic that isn't true with others is that in the past, people said, we're not going to default on our debt. There are uh, there are a number of people in Kevin McCarthy's conference who would be happy to. Right. There does seem to be this sense. I mean, I you're citing Byrd and Johnson is interesting because there is this sense that, oh, Washington has this history of coming together and solving these things because they have to and they always have. But the nature of this Republican caucus makes that an, kind of an unreliable assumption now, right? Yes, Absolutely. I was just trying to trying to give you the sunniest possible outcome. The consequences, Emily, are just truly catastrophic if they let this go to the wall, which is that U.S. Treasuries, which are the most reliable store of value in the history of the world, would suddenly lose value. U.S. borrowing costs would skyrocket, which would, in itself would make the debt and the kind of U.S. government's financial position much more precarious. The dollar would be called into question as our reserve currency. The stock market presumably would crater. It's just... It's terrible on every level. It's pretty unspeakable, and it's so unspeakable that there's just part of me that thinks that if in the end this really is a game of chicken, that President Biden is going to invoke the 14th Amendment or mint the kazillion dollar coin. Like that it just, the consequences are too great that he has to 
say that he's not doing that because once he takes the pressure off the table by really putting that out there as an option, then forget the negotiations. Um, and he, when he's talked about it, he has said correctly that the, it would end up, you know, being challenged in court and that will be its own challenge for the economy and produce some tremors and shakes. I mean, it's not, this is really not an ideal solution at all, but I sort of feel like in the end, he's going to have to break the glass. Well, I interviewed Jeff Stein in the Washington Post yesterday, who covers economics for them, and he's been writing a lot about the White House thinking on the 14th Amendment and the and the billion, quadrillion dollar coin. And I said to him after Biden had said basically what you just said, Emily, which is I'm thinking about it, but I can't do it this time because it's going to create economic chaos even if I did it. So I said to Jeff, so that's done, right? They're not thinking about that anymore. And he's like, no, because the options are so bad, as David outlined, like, you know, if the idea is, do you do you send a busload of people over the cliff or just a minivan of people over the cliff? You know, they'll hope that the 14th Amendment would be the minivan rather than the bus. You invoke it by just continuing to pay bills, right? Yes. Then you wait for the court challenge. And there's a court challenge. And then, and you... then your defense is, it says that the public debt shall not be questioned in the 14th Amendment. I mean, there's a problem, which I mentioned last week, which is that it is Congress that has the power to tax and spend in the Constitution. Like... But Congress has, has has authorized the spending, right? Has already taxed and spent. Yeah. But the intent of the amendment to make sure that the federal government didn't do what the Confederate states did, which is basically be like, ah, I'm not going to pay the bills, does feel like it's on the side of keeping paying the bills, even if Congress doesn't get its act together. I mean, it does. Uh, historically, it feels like it's on the president's side, even though, again, you can win in court and have buckled the economy. Right. And also remember, we are talking about this very conservative Supreme Court, which does not, you know, like that's a factor here. I, I find it hard to believe the Supreme Court would throw the U.S. economy into disarray default. I mean, the another thing to think about is a very textualist reading of the 14th Amendment. Right there. It says public debt shall not be questioned. Boom. Yeah. I mean, the thing, the reason it seems off the walls, just that nobody has done it before, right? Like when you have a line in the Constitution that has never been invoked in this particular way by a president, it seems like a radical thing to do. On the other hand, we it's only right in the last like, what, 20 years, 30 years that lifting the debt ceiling has turned into its own very polarized, like, I mean, now incredibly polarized act and game, right? Do, do you think that the Biden folks are in the mode which of conceding any cuts is blackmail, we're not going to concede anything? Or do you think Biden is such a negotiator? He's such a person who's inclined to find half a loaf somewhere that eventually he'll be like, okay, we'll we'll give you back, uh, you know, the pandemic money that hasn't been spent and we'll create a blue ribbon commission and we'll do a couple other things. Well, you get a couple of problems. Yeah, I think he's, yeah, as you mentioned, he already signaled that he's open to the idea of unspent pandemic money coming back. There's also apparently some possible agreement on um, energy permitting reform, which both sides want for different reasons. The Republicans wanted to do more oil and gas drilling. The left wants it to make it easier to do green energy projects. The problem is twofold. One, everybody has to figure out what their debate meeting so you know for this to succeed it seems to me they have to come up with one of those constructions that were in feels like is in a jane austen or a trollope novel in which the romance or the negotiation takes place with both sides recognizing that they are allowing the other side to embrace a fiction 
So McCarthy has to allow Biden to say that the negotiating he's doing on spending is totally unrelated to the debt ceiling. And then Biden has to allow McCarthy to go to his people and say, I only got the White House to agree to any spending reductions or spending changes because I said that raising the debt ceiling, that it was conditional on raising the debt ceiling. And they basically have to to each hold that fiction while they do the negotiating. And then at the end, basically agree to disagree about what they were negotiating, basically play a bunch of word games. But they have to allow all that, which is like a good faith allowance. And McCarthy's new at this. And back to your point about half a loaf, I mean, he faces a conference where uh, it's not implausible that a number of people will say, no way, we want not only a whole loaf, we want two loaves, and we want some challah, and we want some French bread. And we also would like um, that sort of lovely baguette thing. Focaccia? Can I have some focaccia? They don't even know that the French bread and the baguette are the same. Well, exactly right. And, and that's one of their biggest problems. <laughs> So that's the the tricky thing with respect to your reasonable point. I mean, remember, Biden was the one who negotiated with McConnell to get out of this debt ceiling thing last time. But that's because they recognize the kind of and this is something Biden got beat up for in the Democratic primary, but they recognize the kind of trade-offs. And instead of having to live through all the compromises that get you to the reality that it's only going to be a half a loaf. Biden and McConnell start at half a loaf. Like, they just know how to shorten the distance of all the crap that's happening right now, which is which is new for McCarthy and exacerbated by the fact that McCarthy's got this complicated conference, as we were discussing about immigration, where, you know, they run into problems even with themselves on bills that are totally down the line in terms of Republican policy. They even have trouble. So anything that includes any priorities or interests of Democrats, and it's like 50 times harder. Man, the dream of, oh, if only Mitch McConnell were the person we were negotiating with. The Biden folks are like, oh, if only it was Mitch McConnell. It does seem like this time, like that's kind of true, no? Oh, it's totally true, but, but McConnell can't do anything. In fact, McConnell is probably worse if you were, if your end game is to finding a deal, it's probably worse because the people in the conference on the House side who don't trust McCarthy really don't trust McConnell. Can I add one other tiny thing just among the many absurd things that Donald Trump said on policy grounds? One of the insane things he said was basically like, ah, you know, debt ceiling, not that big a deal. We have proof that it's a big deal. In 2011, the cost of even approaching a breach of the debt ceiling cost taxpayers a billion dollars or more and, and, and had all kinds of other economic effects. It's not a supposition. It's not a guess, right? And so the blase, like I can get deals done in 24 hours and all this is, I'm sorry, off going off on the Trump thing, but re- remember the biggest ch- thing about Donald Trump is that you can't bullshit your way through the presidency. Pandemics don't get beaten by bluster. Debt ceilings and collapses of the economy can't be shilly-shallied around. There are effects. Gravity does eventually come to a president. And when you say things that deny the um, existence of gravity, that's really grave because it's not just about your own personal behavior. You've got the entire country that you're destroying when your BS doesn't turn out to be true. On that note, I think it would be kind of helpful if the financial market started to shake. But the fact that they seem unaffected is like makes it seem like there's not enough pressure here. That's what happened with TARP. When the House decided that they didn't want to pass TARP, then the Dow went down 800 points. And they were like, oh, wait, nope, sorry. Can we get a do-over? Yeah, it's a mulligan. We've got a TARP mulligan. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you were kicking back, Emily, and like me, having a mezcal, because you've just come back from Mexico, and all drinks with mezcal are delicious. What are you going to be chattering about? 
I am really interested in this decision by an FDA advisory panel to say that it's worth it to have over-the-counter birth control pills. The pill at issue here is called Opil. It was approved 50 years ago, but you've always needed a prescription to get it. And, you know, the FDA panel was wrestling with some real questions about whether women who have indications where they shouldn't take the pill, like if they're at risk of breast cancer, will they understand not to take this pill if it's widely available? Will teenagers read the instructions closely? Has the company been able to show that people take the pill every day at the same time the way they're supposed to? Like, they got caught up in the risks. But in the end, they said that the benefits of having access to this kind of birth control over the counter outweigh the risks. And it's going to be interesting and important what the FDA as a whole said. There was a, you know, discussion about having Plan B, emergency contraception, available not over the counter, just like in pharmacies under the Obama administration. And President Obama himself or people around him kind of reached out to stop the FDA from doing that. And it just seemed like a very conservative, puritanical moment. And this time, the Biden administration, you know, has some power here to really make an important form of birth control much more widely available. You know, when I think about when I was taking the pill and how it would have made a difference if I could have just walked into a drugstore and gotten it as opposed to going through getting a prescription. And sometimes that step is important. And sometimes it just is like bureaucracy, effectively. And we don't need that level of medicalization. So anyway, Watch to see what the FDA does next. John Dickerson, what's your chatter? My chatter is about Microsoft, which has an amazing ability to know how we spend our time and do our work um, because so many people use their products. And they found that in a work week, two entire days (laughs) are taken up by email and meetings for people who are massive users of their products, which is a great deal of people. Two entire days, which seems to me to be a national catastrophe, and that everybody who is engaged in the sending of emails and holding of meetings should work very hard to cut that back down to one. Because I think all of us can access the feeling that comes over you when you are stuck in a meeting or answering an email that hasn't been thought through or doesn't need to be sent, or when somebody takes an email you send and then forwards it to somebody else and says, for visibility when you didn't want the visibility (laughs) and a variety of other grave sins. (laughs) Oof. All right, my chatter. Quickly, this is not my chatter, just usual log rolling. As some of you know, I offer a tour of the secret Civil War fort in hidden deep in Rock Creek Park here in Washington on weekends here in D.C., and I've just added a bunch of dates. It's been sold out, and I just added a bunch of dates in the summer and fall So check it out on Airbnb, Exploring a Secret Fort is what it's called. Or you can email me, davidplotz at gmail.com, and I'll send you the link. But just look it up on Airbnb. It's really fun. It's great. Got a perfect 5.0 rating. But that's not my chatter. My chatter is I was in Mexico City, as I think Emily was. Yes. What an amazing city. That is not my chatter. My chatter is about something that I found so inspiring and wonderful in Mexican culture. So almost all Mexicans have uh, are significantly biologically, genetically Amerindians. So if you look at the Mexican data, 15% of Mexicans are identify as indigenous, and another 62% are identify as mixed, or which in which is a mix of European, African, and Amerindian ancestry. And so that means that over 80% have have some Amerindian 
culture in them. And what I love about Mexico in contrast to the United States is the way in which that indigenous identity is so central to being Mexican. So here's this country which which is, you know, it speaks Spanish. It was colonized for 300 years by Spain. The religion, the national religion, effectively the universal religion is is a European Catholicism. And yet the way in which the Aztec and Maya and Toltec cultures still live in people and still guide people and are still important to people is incredible and so different from the U.S. where just a small fraction of Americans have native ancestry or at least claim native ancestry or know that they have native ancestry and where Indianness is kind of othered and suppressed and where there's relatively there was relatively little mixing of colonists and Indians in the U.S. compared to what happened in Mexico. The story of of Indians in America, the story of the of the tribal cultures and the tribal civilizations should be core to America's identity. It should be. But inst- instead, the story we tell about ourselves is all about the European conquest. And it's about uh, it's about the, the laws that, that these European Americans passed and the, co- the constitution they created. And in this thing in Mexico, where I'm sure I'm positive that Mexico has enormous class and race divides that I don't I don't know enough to know about them. I'm positive it is. It is obviously a hugely troubled society with tons of inequity in it. But the embrace and incorporation of that kind of historic Indian culture and identity is awesome and it's profound. And I found it really moving as like an alternative way that the U.S. could have gone had we gone somewhere else. I don't know if you felt that way too, Emily, but... Yeah, I think that's all really interesting. And some of the museums uh, really reflect all of that. The Anthropology Museum, the National History Museum, wonderful museums. Anthropology Museum is like one of the greatest museums I've ever seen. Yeah. Listeners, you have chatters too. Please keep them coming by emailing to us at gabfest at slate.com. Something that really struck you. And our listener chatter this week is from Eric. Hi, Gabfest. This is Eric from Tuckahoe, New York. My chatter is about the most remade movie in history, although you've probably never heard of it. It's called The Kidnapper's Foil and was released hundreds of times between the 1930s and 1970s. It tells the simple story of a girl being kidnapped and then rescued by a gang of local kids, very much in the style of The Little Rascals. The film was the work of a man named Melton Barker, one of the country's itinerant filmmakers. These hucksters went from town to town producing movies and recruiting locals to act in it, for a small fee, of course. And while sort of a grift, the movies were actually made, premiering at the movie theater in town before being stored away in the basement of the local library. Itinerant films like The Kidnapper's Foil have developed a cultural significance as well, as they preserve some of the regional dialects of rural America in ways that other media did not. You can learn more about this story by watching the video, The Most Remade Movie in History, from the YouTuber Ironic Sands. That's our show for today. The GapFest is produced today by Jared Downing with an assist from Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is VP of Audio for Slate. Please email us your chatter at GapFest at Slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and David Plotz, thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? We... Got an email from a listener. We're going to call this listener Andrew. That is not his name. But he posed a dilemma for us. And I'm just going to read quickly his email. 
I'm a longtime listener of the Political Gab Fest. I'm a teacher living in a major metropolitan city in the Midwest. I lean significantly to the left and currently teach high school at an arts high school that has a large population of queer youth and is a safe harbor for them as we are in a purple reddish suburb. I will likely have an opportunity to teach at a private Catholic high school where the student body and families lean right. It seems like a great place to work, but they have previously fired two employees for being in gay relationships. I know you subscribe to the idea that we've really sorted ourselves and aren't around people that think differently from us. This would put me in that position, but I'm not sure if I can get on board with what the Catholic school has previously done. I would appreciate your thoughts. So, Emily, when you saw this email, did you have any immediate thoughts about whether Andrew should stay at this arts high school, public arts high school, or go to teach at this Catholic school, which has, you know, values that he doesn't agree with on certain things, clearly? Okay, so... Here's the choice I imagine here. You stay at your school and you're in a place where like your values pretty much. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., On Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.